You're listening to a recording from the 2017 Mockingbird Conference held at St. George's Episcopal Church in New York City. All right, folks. If you are in the sanctuary, you want to get your eyes as close to these screens as possible, however that might happen. If you're here for the Mockingbird History of Art, you want to see those. So if you're in a seat where you can see those well, you're in good shape. All right, as people filter to their places, thank you for choosing this breakout session. I am comforted by the fact that they're all recorded because there's a bunch that I would want to be at right now. So my name is Matt Milliner. I'm an art historian at Wheaton College, not far from here. And Hearing Law, Seeing Gospel is my formal title. That is, you look at art and you think, okay, this is going to be an example of obligation, expectation, law. And we saw the first part of it yesterday. Some of us had the privilege of hearing Paul Zoll go to Thomas Cole's Course of Empire series, and you'd think it's this moralistic allegory of civilization. But that is, you would hear law But when he spoke about it, you saw the gospel. As he exegeted it, this presumed allegory of civilizational competence turned into a message of grace. So that's what I'm going to do this afternoon. The very same thing that happened at the New York Historical Society, but continuing along in those veins. For whatever work might be... Oh, let me begin in prayer. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for this place that you are renewing with the wind of your Holy Spirit and the message of your free grace in Christ. We pray that this talk would contribute to that message. In Jesus' name, amen. For whenever work might be accomplished, there would always remain an anxious doubt as the experience of all self-justifiers prove. Martin Luther said this to conclude his debate with Erasmus. And if you were a self-justifier in the 16th century, as he was, or if you are a self-justifier in America in the 21st century, as I was when I, and am, when I first walked in, literally stumbled into this conference in 2012, had never heard of Mockingbird in my life, was doing church architecture hunting, walked in and I said, wow, Protestantism's not dead. <laughs> There's something going on. So I walked in as a self-justifier. And if you are a self-justifier, your life looks like this. This is Andrea Mantegna. You can see it at the Louvre. It's Minerva expelling the vices from the garden of virtue. This is your life if you are a self-justifier. And I know it's way up there, but we have the gift of being able to zoom in a little bit. And up high are the cardinal virtues. Justice, temperance, and fortitude. Just work up some justice, temperance, and fortitude, and the garden of virtues will blossom and vices will be expelled. That is the message. But notice those cardinal virtues are way up high. And what's always interesting to me is that they each have their own implements, and temperance is actually pouring a beverage 
in such a way that, that you never see a bartender do it just right where it really pulls it up there, which reminds me of Cocktail. I don't know if anybody remembers that movie, but it, it had this deep and damaging impression on me because as a young man, what it, what it meant, you looked out at the skyline of New York and you said, I'm going to conquer that city. And that's what Tom Cruise did. And so he, he, he had that control, that cool under pressure that made him such a great bartender. But again, a random reference there. And there's fortitude, be courageous, you can do it. And we zoom down here, that's not enough. You have to have wisdom in your life and that is Minerva. And there is a little inscription around the tree that reads in Greek, Latin, and Hebrew, which again are, are languages that the scriptures are anchored in, the Vulgate as well as the original text, the Masoretic text, the Greek New Testament. But it's not scripture. <laughs> it's showing off the classical learning and it says, come divine, com not God, but come divine companions of the virtues, that is Minerva, who are returning to us from heaven, oh, that is the three cardinal virtues up there, expel these foul monsters of vices from our seats. So work it up, folks. Work it up. You can do it. Um, maybe we could translate that into our own culture. I'm looking at the man in the mirror. I'm asking him to make a change. That great Michael Jackson song, so this is Michael, summon it up, you can make it happen. We know how it worked out. But you can read a beautiful meditation on Michael Jackson by David Zoll in his book. It's powerful. And so I look at this with a heavy heart to a certain extent. That message, make a change, didn't quite work out. Or we could switch it up with the famous motivational speaker, Tony Robbins, we can change our lives. We can do, be, and have exactly what we wish. Isn't it intoxicating to hear that message? And so again, 21st century or early 16th century, that's the message. And how does it work? Very simple, really. Do you see that woman over there? Well, she's chastity. And, you know, work some chastity up. Just be chaste. It's very simple, okay? Down here, you zoom, and we see this strange walking dead-like looking figures. Well, that is... And in Latin, there's a little inscription embedded that says, eliminate idle leisure and Cupid's bow is broken. So that's how you get chased. Just don't be idle, all right? And there goes sloth. Ah, he's being expelled by Minerva's wisdom. We keep moving and there is the sag-breasted monkey, eternal hatred, fraud, and malice, okay? So all those, that malice in your heart, just get rid of it. Expel it from your life. You can make a change. Keep moving, and there we see some centaurs symbolizing other vices. You've got ingratitude and avarice who are holding ignorance. And they're like, oh no, our time is up because Minerva's here, your own self-knowledge. But wait, do you have self-knowledge? That would be prudence, and prudence is actually stuck in this prison. That is the idea of knowing who you are and there's a little Latin inscription there. Gods, save the fourth cardinal virtue, the mother of them, prudence. Break her out of that prison. And it's going to happen. You don't have to worry. It's going to happen. Because, again, you can do it. And we zoom up there, and there they are again. They're about to be partnered with the fourth cardinal virtue. And then there's a little ingredient that injects some uncertainty into the whole scheme. We zoom a little bit over to the side, and uh-oh, there's a, a wind that seems and it might blow things away. 
and they'll never actually come to your rescue. The ever so elegant insertion of something of that kind, of the unexpected. But that's about as low anthropology as it gets. For the most part, it's extremely high because that gust of wind is often the distance. You can pull it off. That is the self-justifier's life. Now, I could quote Luther here, but too easy. Why not quote one of his sympathizers, a Catholic sympathizer, Gasparo Contarini, who said he was the Catholic who got the Reformation. And he said, because he was a self-justifier, the ancient philosophers were capital fools in thinking that this purification could be brought about by acquiring the habitual practice of the virtue. <laughs> There's a lot written about habit and virtue today. And he knew it better than anyone in the contemporary world. And he said, you're foolish if you think that's enough. We must justify ourselves by the justice of another, namely Christ. Joining ourselves to him, his justice must become ours. A Catholic witness to this message of justification that was emerging in the early 16th century. That is what Contarini tells us and what Luther said, of course, is that the distinction between law and gospel is the highest art in Christendom. And I wanna tell you about the man who put the art in the highest art in Christendom. And that is Chronic's BFF. I'm sorry, Luther's BFF, that is Lucas Cronach. And this is what that art looks like. You've seen it before, I hope, but maybe you haven't meditated on it and unpacked it. It's the opposite of Mantegna. And what has happened here is that that principle of law and gospel that was confused in the self-justifying Martin Luther, Luther's life is here segmented so he can distinguish the one from the other. The Holy Spirit is the only one who can really do it, said Luther. But this was the breakthrough. When I made that distinction between my obligations and what Christ has done for me. So let's go through a tour. By the way, no fancy classical learning showing off. It's simply the scriptures from Romans in particular that are written on the bottom. So you can get it, okay? We zoom down here and there is a streaker being marched to his barbecue, uh, chased by sin and death. The things that we just heard about from Simeon Zoll, <laughs> they are real, they're not mythologies. Call them what you will, they're very with us today. And that is the destiny of this man. There's nothing that he can do. He's a self-justifier. And up here you've got, well, God is sort of there, but off in the distance, the moralistic therapeutic God, we might call him. And of course, um, down there you see the law, Moses saying, here's all the things you're supposed to do. You can pull it off, can't you? Well, no, actually he can't because that God can't help him. And then we zoom down here and we see grace. Law on one side, grace on the other. And the message, John the Baptist is pointing like any good preacher should to what's already been done. And at the moment of realization, the super soaker of Jesus' blood spurts from his side and splashes on that same man's head, which may be an experience that you had if you came to this conference before or hopefully even this weekend, that yes, it matters for you. 
It's not a general dispersal of blood. It's aimed at you and your sins and my and my sins in particular. And when that message comes, there is an eruption that comes from the tomb and there's Jesus. He has down there defeated sin and death. And there's this innocuous little deputized lamb who has done that work. This is the law gospel message that Lucas Cronick cooked up with Martin Luther to disseminate this message visually. We put it all together and then we can summarize it perhaps with the Heidelberg Disputation, point 26, one of Luther's great statements. The law says do this and it's never done. Grace says believe this and it is already done. What a gift that we have these because we know that Andreas Karlstadt wanted to get rid of all images in Wittenberg, but then Luther came back to town and said, don't you kick out Lucas Chronic. We're gonna work together to make these. And what a difference that offers. Just a few decades and we have a revolution, a rediscovery of the doctrine of grace in a semi-Pelagian Christian world. And here it is visually. Now what's really cool, what if we smash them together? kind of neat that we can do this. And if we smash them together, which I know you can't see in detail, but you, if you bring these up, they'll make sense. We can see Contarini's words illustrated. The ancient philosophers were capital fools in thinking this purification could be brought about by acquiring the habitual practice of virtue. And here you see Minerva, who is conjoined with our self-justifying selves that are sending our own beings to hell. <laughs> that is where that self-understanding might belong, we could say. And then what's kind of cool up here, remember, Contarini said, no, the cardinal virtue of justice, not enough. It's got to be Jesus's justice, the fulfillment of that pagan tradition in Christ, perhaps even the eclipse of it, we might say, to be more radical. And there you see justice is connected to Christ. And then down here, hey, virtues are still important but they have to be backgrounded to the law gospel message. And so there you see that Jesus is conquering is what makes it possible for you to expel sloth from your life. And only Jesus' victory makes that possible. So that is the law gospel message, perhaps in a way to bring those two together, to reconcile them, if that can be done, but maybe it can't. <laughs> maybe we just need to be reminded of this over and over again, pure and clean because we are self-justifiers ourselves. Folks, this is an organizing principle for all of scripture, and it is an organizing principle for all of art history, which is why this law gospel message got slapped onto frontispieces at the beginning of these newly published translations of the Bible into the vernacular. Because you open up your Bible, whoa, 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 whoa. You need a hermeneutical key. Or you're just going to get lost in hearing these messages of law and thinking, ah, I'm done. No, 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 no. Distinguish between law and gospel and the scriptures unlock. And so use these frontispieces. I wish we would print them in our Bibles today. They're important. They give you the theological message. And they're so beautiful and important, beautifully redescribed in each of these frontispieces for Melanchthon's work, for Luther's work. And sometimes they were even etched into beautiful carving. There's beautiful carving in the church around us. Well, people had the law gospel message etched in their homes 
to remind them of this dynamic in the kitchen where we heard this morning, it's really important to remember that message of grace. But I've got unfortunate news. It didn't stay here. Because Lucas Chronic Jr., a lot of good about him, but you may very well know that he took that law gospel message, <laughs> Lucas Chronic the Younger, and he used it as a polemic to attack the Catholic Church. And here you see Luther preaching the gospel and there's the message, and that's true and it's wonderful, but there's a demonization that happens on the other side. We demonized them, we Protestants demonized the Catholics, they returned the favor quite nicely. And this is one of those barrier walls that was erected that made it possible for the secular world to develop in so many ways. So what do we do? Do we just want to, in the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, be like, oh yeah, that's right, that's the Antichrist. Let me show you all the images of the Pope burning in hell. Well, hope not. I know there's still problems and we are not yet united, but I don't know if this is a good direction. And all the exhibitions that have accompanied the 500th anniversary, whether in LA or in Minnesota, and they're beautiful, but these show up and maybe it's a bitter pill to swallow as we celebrate this message. And so what I wanna do is to not read it forward, right? And say, okay, well, let's just dive into this polemic and hate on the people across Stuyvesant Square, right? No, let's see if we can find the law gospel in other traditions. And I think we can, and that's what surprised me. If we can find it in Lady Gaga, <laughs> we can certainly find it here as well. So let's read it backwards. Let's see it in Florence and Rome where we wouldn't think it would be. And trust me, folks, it's there. And I say it as a Protestant for whom this message has been so important that it enables me to see it in other places. So let's start with this. When I look at this, this is a devotional manual from the late Middle Ages. That's all the stuff that Luther's about to attack, right? We don't like that. Ah, oh, it's private. It's all this, you know, I hear law when you tell me that I'm about to open a late medieval manual. Maybe you hear that as well. And we zoom in and the, the impression is sort of confirmed. There's Eve, right? There's Mary, or is it a personification of the church? And it's very sacramental. She's picking from the tree. Okay, again, whoa, whoa, whoa. let's go back to the Reformation. Wait a second. Lucas Cronach, the elder, was trained in this tradition. And that's where he inherited much of it. And we zoom here and we see, yes, Eve is dispensing the bad fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil to these people who are not abstract allegories, but contemporary 15th century people. It is for down to earth for their everyday lives, right? And who is that person straddling him? <laughs> well, sin and death. Ah, and then we move to the other side and the nudity is there as well for good reason. And there is Mary, which might make us nervous, but did not Luther say that she was the ultimate illustration of grace, the divine grace joined with her unworthiness, her lack of merit. Oh, thou blessed virgin. Career long, by the way, he didn't give that up. He stayed with that devotion to her because she illustrated the message of grace. And so we could look at her and we could say as she, this is a, feminine analog to the law gospel message. Could we look at it that way? I think we can because 
the tree motif is what Lucas Chronic is riffing off of, and it's here as well. And as Bonnie Noble, a wonderful scholar on Lucas Chronic, said, the cross and the Last Supper are the alpha and omega of Lutheran theology. Well, what's this? The tree of the cross and the Last Supper. Same thing. It's there in a beautiful way. And I can only see it there because Lucas, Chronic, and Luther brought it out and showed me that I need to be looking for it. So that might be a first illustration of hearing law and seeing gospel. But wait a second, when we go to Sinai, not gonna be there, right? Because that's where the law was delivered. And that's where those bearded monks hung out and still hang out today, some of them from Texas. <laughs> and you see those beautiful icons that were rediscovered that are all cataloged in the Princeton Sinai database. Enjoy them to your heart's content. Amazing that we can do that. And I mean, for goodness sakes, folks, let's be honest, okay? This is the ladder, the heavenly ladder of John Climacus that's illustrated in these icons. And wow, if that's not a self-justifying message, I don't know what is, right? Because you're supposed to climb the ladder of virtues and is Jesus gonna help you? Well, sure, if, if you get to the top. He'll like help you with the last rung, but you better get to the top, you know, second to last one before he reaches his hand out. Now, I love John Climacus, and I know that you can have non-Pelagian readings of him. There are a couple of lines, but I'm telling you, this is what it, the message delivers a pretty unfortunate message that you can do it on your own. Because down here, this is what most of our lives probably look like. Demons ripping us off the rungs of hell. And when you really unpack John Climacus, this great manuscript, um, you do get a sense of uh, union with Christ is the top rung, union with God. And you've got to work your way up. Now again, it might not always work that way in practice, but I want to be serious and say, yeah, we've got some law going on here, all right? And I want to rebuke it from the beginning. And I, it's hard for me to say that because I really, I'm a Byzantinist, I love this stuff, but I have a friend named Joel Sheasley who's done the work for me. He's a painter. And I'm telling you, these are the mockingbird images par excellence. These are gorgeous, massive, numinous paintings of fallen ladders over and over again. And I said, Joel, I'm like, I hear the mockingbird message. In the, and he's like, mm, might be there. Over and over again, I'm just quoting, the language of spiritual ascent is not unbiblical, says John Newton, nor is it altogether harmful, but ascent language can and often does reinforce a false mental map that leaves us in control of our religious destiny. And his wonderful book, Falling Into Grace, this, I think if there's a second edition, this ladder should be on the cover. Or take the words quoted last night from Aaron, spiritual discipline of doing nothing. Put your ladder down. Or you want to measure your life? How are you doing? I always measure myself. Well, here Joel gives us a ruler laid on the asphalt of suburban life, practicing underdoing an assured failure. Richard Rohr quoted last night. Zoom in. I mean, don't you want that hanging in your living room? <laughs> This image of the fallen metric for your life. Again, grace. Whether it's in John Climacus, the heavenly ladder, or in Walter Hilton, the ladder of divine ascent, 14th, uh, 14th 15th, 15th century, the Anglican version of this, right? These need to be, in some senses, put in their place. And that's what Joel does. But when you go back to Sinai, 
we really are seen to be stuck with law. Mount Sinai, Orthodox Monastery, and you look up and there's the transfiguration of Christ and there are two little windows, the law that you might one day reach but never really will, that's the ladder. And when you stand in that church, you really do feel that Christ is distant from you and the law is oppressing you in a way. In fact, there's mosaic of Moses receiving the law. It's right where this happened. So he's looking down at you. Is law coming into your life? So I might be ready to throw my Orthodox friends under the bus and say, you guys, they're all full of law. But when you go to the church, folks, guess what happens? When you worship with them, the light spills into the window and you realize that there's grace in this tradition as well. It illuminates those tablet-shaped windows and there are gestures of grace here also. <laughs> the light of God looking at us in our sin <laughs> and giving us his benevolent regard nonetheless. Now, speaking of benevolent regard, Maybe the most famous and important, oh, so seeing, hearing law, seeing gospel, you see what I'm saying? Maybe the most famous and important of these icons at Mount Sinai is the Christ Pantocrator, means ruler of all. You will have seen it before. And when you look at it, you, I hope you've seen it before, it's amazing. And when you see it, there's a sense in which, well, this is kind of the, the Christ who's looking down on you and with this sense of judgment, where's that merciful Jesus? And there are some Christs that work that way, some images of Jesus. But what famously people say about this icon is if you split it in half, you see sort of this malevolent Christ on this side. And like, wait, you think you haven't committed adultery? Have you lusted against someone in your heart? Oh yeah, you've, you've, you've broken that law. And then on this side, you have the benevolent gaze. And I've heard people do this to unpack Chalcedon. I think that's sketchy. I don't know. But what I am beginning to see, thanks to Mockingbird, is I'm like, oh, I see. I see law gospel there. But Karl Barth always, you know, he's worried about law gospel. He wants to ground it in Christ. I'm like, the icon does the work, Carl. <laughs> it's doing it, right? Because there's that law message. Jesus does give us these impossible demands so that will be drawn to him because he's the only one that can fulfill them. <laughs> command what thou wilt and give what you command, says Augustine. And it's all baked in here, law. And of course, he's holding the book on that side, right? And this side is the blessing. The same guy who gives those demands is the same guy who <laughs> fulfills them in our lives. That's what the brilliance of this ancient icon does from the sixth century. And what's interesting is that later versions seem to spin off in one or the other, either the purely malevolent, right? Ah, or kind of our, our uh, conservative Jesus or our liberal Jesus on this side, looking away from you saying, no, oh, it's no big deal. It's no big deal. Right? But the, there is a wisdom in the confluence, righteousness and peace have kissed each other, all visually achieved in this mockingbird icon, we could say. You go to the mat, you will see that one of these, this becomes the deesis tradition, um, which means to have mercy. And that deesis tradition has Jesus here and John the Baptist here and Mary there. And that, uh, there's a reproduction of this at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in the medieval gallery. You can see it, it just go in and turn behind you. And it's glorious, it's from Hagia Sophia. And this is that tradition that is anchored in that icon. And what you'll already see what I'm saying, don't you? That 
if John the Baptist symbolizes the law and Mary, because he was born through her, might symbolize the gospel. That's not how iconographers will talk about this tradition, but I think it's totally permissible to do that. And what that means is that when you walk into an Orthodox church and you see this menacing iconostasis that says, you cannot access the love of God, only the priest can get out there, right? It is problematic to a certain extent, I'll give it to you. But when you zoom in, you can say, wait, wait, hold on now. There's John the Baptist on the book side, the best of the law. You can't do it, I can't do it. And there's Mary. Maybe every single Russian iconostasis is containing a concealed law gospel message. I'm not saying that that's the way it's talked about, but we have every reason to release it from its captivity, we might say, with the gospel message that the Protestants recovered for the sake of the whole church. That's something I think to be excited about. But hold on now. Why did Tetzel go around saying when a coin in the coffer rings a soul from Purgatory Springs? Because of St. Peter's Basilica. That's all because of art. And so we're not gonna see any gospel when we go to what is left of the great tomb that was intended to be placed in St. Peter's, or are we? When you look at Michelangelo's tomb of Julius II, you might think, well, we're gonna see law here. And Michelangelo was indeed burdened with law. He's the ultimate self-justifier and he's more talented than all of us. So he was really good at it. But what I'm suggesting to you today, thanks to the scholarly work that others have done, and you can read them in these books, is that there's been a revolution in Michelangelo's scholarship in the last 10, 15 years that shows that he was profoundly influenced by the message of grace. The Protestant articulation of it in Italy. And so indeed, Michelangelo has now emerged for us as a law gospel sculptor, we might say. Let me unpack the details for you. So he was involved with a group that we might call Mockingbird in Italy in the 16th century. <laughs> they were known as the spiritual ones the spirituali, those who sneered at these individuals. They were also known as the Ecclesia Viterbense. That is, they weren't in Rome, but they were in Viterbo, kind of a not-so-known town, like tucked away because they weren't involved in the power structures. So here they are. Uh, Reginald Pohl, I know he has a checkered history after things get shaken down here. Gonzaga, and most importantly, Vittoria Colonna, noble woman as connected as it gets, but something happened to her life when she discovered grace, and then she started to write letters to the most talented sculptor of the day. And his heart got hooked on the message, not on Vittoria. People have painted this, airbrushed it as some romance. It was not that. We have the letters. They were passionately interested in the ideas of gratia divina, divine grace. In fact, Michelangelo was obsessed with money and he would never give stuff away, but he gave stuff away to her. Everybody wanted a Michelangelo. And he gave her an image of the soul being born again in Mary. That is, she's lamenting at the cross and Christ is born within her anew, which was code for born again language. I know it sounds like a Da Vinci Code thing, but these are the best scholars out there saying it. There really was a sense in which 
giving away drawings was to illustrate that la gratia divina, divine grace, cannot be bought. So here, Vittoria, it's yours. Don't pay me back. Don't pay me back. That's what was going on with these drawings. Calvin knew about these Italian reformers, quote unquote, small r, and he called them Nicodemites because he's like, you don't have the courage to come out of the closet as a Protestant? <laughs> well, they didn't because it got pretty dark pretty quickly. But isn't it interesting if you go see the self-portrait of, or not self-portrait, portrait by someone else of Michelangelo at the Met, it deliberately resembles his portrait of himself as Nicodemus in one of his pietas. <laughs> you can see it at the New Duomo Museum. He illustrates himself that way as if almost to confess that he's involved in this spiritual circle. But that is a later Michelangelo. The early Michelangelo obsessed with his own reputation. And so he designs a tomb for the warrior Pope Julius II. You can see the drawing in the Met as well. It's beautiful. It's like, I'm going to create you the ultimate Neoplatonic ascent to God tomb because you're a great Pope and you are on your war horse doing stuff and I'm impressed by it. And I'm a great artist and we're going to get together. So this is the first drawing that, he, that the young Michelangelo is going to make for Julius II. Within a week, it turned into this unbelievably huge tomb symbolizing Neoplatonic spiritual ascent because he was a very good Neoplatonist, Michelangelo. He had been trained by the best of them. And it got bigger and bigger until it, if it was constructed, it would have been the most unimaginably large tomb for 40 sculpted figures would have been impossible for him to create despite the long life that he had. Ridiculous, youthful ambition. That was what he was going to do for Julius II, but then Julius II dies. My goodness, was it going to be incredible. And yes, it was going to be placed in a very prominent place in St. Peter's, the cherry on top of the glorification of the papacy that sparked the 95 Theses. In fact, this tomb was so important that the slow progress on it led to a little thing you may have heard of. Julius II's like, why aren't you finishing my tomb? Okay, you got some, go, 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 go do the Sistine Chapel. He's like, oh, fine, I'm not a painter. You can paint, go do it. That's how, it was all the tomb that was the real energy. And you can see scraps of his ambition all over the world. In the Louvre, for example, the dying slaves, these very extraordinary sexy sculptures that he was creating, they just never got included because he gave up on the project. I love this quote from Forcellino, the art historian who's done so much of this work. The relationship between Michelangelo and Julius revolved around money, which the artist was constantly demanding, obtained in abundance, and then denied having received. He was obsessed with it. And when you're obsessed with money, you don't want to keep working because you can get another sweet commission. And so his, after Julius II dies, he's like, oh, I don't have to finish the tomb. This is great. So by 1532, the creditors of Julius II are like, hey, Mike, you finished this or we got some knee breaker companions who might pay a little visit. So he's threatened that he either comes to Rome and finishes it or who knows what's going to happen. So all of a sudden he's interested in the tomb again. And so he took the pieces that he had made and reluctantly gets to Rome and he's like, okay, I'll finish the tomb. You can visit it if you wanna make a little quote unquote Protestant pilgrimage to Rome at St. Peter's in Chains. It's no longer in the St. Peter's. And what's interesting about St. Peter's in Chains is there are chains there that go back to the chains of the apostle, 
right, when he was kept in prison. And so the story, the, the tomb is tucked off to the side, almost an insult in and of itself. And Peter's chains when he was in Jerusalem were gifted to the Roman empress Eudoxia. And when Eudoxia gave them to Pope Leo, they mirac- who had um, the, Peter's chains from Rome in his possession, they miraculously fused together. <gasps> and it was, in some senses, a symbol of state and church fused as one. We might think of it that way. And those are the chains that you can see when you go there today. Now, what is Michelangelo going to do? Well, what Forcellino, the chief restorer of this monument has said, is that late in the game, he deliberately had Moses turn away from the chains. Violently restructured the monument so that the Moses who was looking toward this altar is deliberately facing in the other direction. Almost just an offense to the power of the papacy. That's the claim. And again, if you wanted to dispute it, you'd have to become the best restorer who can get enough material physical evidence to push against Forcellino's observation. So pretty interesting that this is articulated. So we might see some gospel here. You have to encounter Christ directly. Isn't it true that Moses encountered God directly at Sinai, but all the people said, I want you to do the work for me. I don't want to have to see God. And the gospel is saying, no, it has to be you individually. You can't have someone mediate it for you. It's a personal message. This reminds me, by the way, of the painting by Benjamin West in the Met of the image of law, Moses, with shock looking away that he cannot do it. The law is not enough as he looks to the promised land. That might be a wonderful analog to the turned Moses of Michelangelo, but maybe even better is the fact that in one of Lucas Chronic's versions of law gospel, there were three. This is the Prague version. We have Moses and, this this version is better because at the end of the day, our lives aren't segmented. The law, you, the gospel, me. No, we're the same person, always bent towards self-justification, right? But we have to be wrenched to look to Christ in the other direction. And can you see perhaps a little bit of Moses there? But to make it perhaps even more interesting, if we take that law gospel message, is that Forcellino argues that what happened is Michelangelo encoded messages from the benefits of Christ, that is the Reformation manual that was spreading throughout Italy into this message of the active life. And so this is the life of law, your beard, that is your life is tangled up in your own ambitions and projects. And here you have hair caught on fire. Now that might be a strange analogy, but we know that Vittoria Colonna used it to symbolize the life of active love that just naturally arises. In fact, the benefits of Christ uses the image, again, illegal book, that disseminates Reformation material in Italy, says it is impossible for a fire to be kindled and not give forth light. This is the faith without which it is impossible that any man can please God. Good works spring naturally just like light springs from fire. That is the message of what it means to be on doing good works on the far side of justification by faith. 
you're still embedded. You're getting used to your justification and sanctification. It really is encoded in this. And again, we have the smoking gun in Vittoria Colonna using this analogy. So what we mean is if, what is it, if you think about fruit arising in your life as opposed to works, as Paul Zoll explains so beautifully in his books, that's what good works look like. It's not work, it's fruit, it's light. That is an example of what that work that's not work might be like. You have images for it in Michelangelo's light sculptures. And people were so infuriated by these not so good Michelangelo's that for centuries we thought that these were not done by him. Because why would Michelangelo make images like that? We zoom in here. <laughs> There's also the suggestion that the image of the contemplative life is a deliberate portrait of Vittoria Colonna who, by the way, dies under mysterious circumstances for reasons we're about to explain. And she is the image of, in some senses you might suggest, this faith emerging from this culture of works. And perhaps the most devastating insult of all, or perhaps compassionate truth-telling, is that the warrior pope, Julius II, is not depicted astride a war horse. <laughs> no, he is depicted completely downcast, defeated. And there is an image of, right above you can see Mary with Jesus with a bird, thinking of the birds in, in Sarah's talk. Um, he's holding that bird. And there are those empty hands, the dead hands that maybe Robert Capon talks about, right? The dead hand, in which case we will be perpetually open to all goods instead of clutching them. I think of those Michelangelo hands when I think of Capon's famous phrase about what it means to be open to grace and not clinging to our achievements. And just compare the youthful Michelangelo with his finished perfect product to this more rustic, and he got more rustic as he got older. Put those two together. The life of works and achievement which crushed him, the ultimate cultural achiever, and the life of grace and maturity that he saw perhaps in the distance. You bring those two together in a gorgeous way in this monument. But unfortunately, all of this information was buried until recently for a very simple reason. Contarini is unable to reconcile the warring Protestants, even though he understood their message at Regensburg, and that led to a deepening rift and then the worst imaginable enemy of the spirituali, a man, Carafa, who they say would have persecuted and killed his own father as a heretic, comes along and narrowly wins the papacy and becomes Pope Paul IV. And at this time, spirituali is now to put you on the wanted list. That's what happens to all of these people. And Michelangelo at this point knows that he is now at danger of being arrested by the Inquisition because he was meeting with them. And Fortolino even goes so far to say that it was in the post-election rage that some of you might be familiar with after the election of the Pope, in this case, that he attacked his own sculpture and knocked off the leg that you can see here. You can, when you go to Florence, there it is. That, uh, because now I have to conceal 
my associations with this group. And remember Prudence who was trapped in there? If she was liberated, she would look like this, okay? She would have a mirror, self-knowledge, right? And a serpent, which symbolizes the knowledge of good and evil, right? And think about that in your life, right? Self-knowledge and knowledge of good and evil. Um, how is that working out for you, right? <laughs> if you know all about yourself, you, you can't liberate you. But, and so I've tried to get us away from this with these messages of grace, but here's the irony. In order to fend off the Inquisition, Michelangelo deliberately misdescribed this statue as, don't worry, it's just prudence. The description in his formal account says that it's a flower garden and mirror representing prudence. And everyone's always been like, no, it's not. Like, so that's why they thought he didn't do it. Because they're like, well, he describes it as something other than it is. And the art historians now are suggesting he had to re-describe it because the message of grace and the middle ground message of the spirituality was now could get you killed. And so you better re-describe that monument. Michelangelo, <laughs> influenced by this message of grace. Now, I got to give it to you. This is a little convoluted, right? Um, this is a really twisted law gospel. I, I, give me something clear, like law gospel in, in Florence, for example. And if you go to the church of San Lorenzo, I'm thinking, okay, we've got a lot of law here, right? Because this is the town of the Medici. And if you go to the church of San Lorenzo, the chief church of the Medici, you will know of the famous Pontormo, a Mannerist artist who had a whole beautiful fresco inside San Lorenzo. Now, Vasari, our chief art historian of this period, hated this fresco series. And he just said it was bad style. But maybe he hated it because it was Lutheranism in Florence. That is what art historians have now suggested. Because Cosimo de' Medici was in rivalry with the Farnese family, and he's like, oh, hey, Lutherans, you can come over here. You can hang out here. This is a place where you can be free. In fact, we know <laughs> that there was a copy of the Benefits of Christ, banned, made illegal, very hard to find copies of this. We have one in Chicago at the Newberry Library. And this was kept in San Lorenzo in the archives. And so what I'm suggesting to you is that the most beautiful imaginable law gospel message is in Florence, and I can't show it to you, because in 1742 it was destroyed while they were renovating the Medici Chapel, and that's why we haven't known about it. But the good news is it survives in drawings in the Uffizi, that is glorious preparatory sketches for Pontormo's law gospel message, <laughs> and thankfully in this engraving that someone did in 1598. And so what I'm going to do as we conclude is I would like to unpack this for you and show you that law gospel was there in Florence as well. There is Christ, a special kind of Christ. If you want to follow up on it, the scholar who's done this work is named Damianiki. It's unbelievable heroic detective work that she's done. And so I'm going to take her reconstructions and unpack this. And first of all, you have all these images of baptism. Because what Simeon just said about sin is that the message of the flood, which is connected to baptism, is the way that low anthropology was expressed by the benefits of Christ, the devotional Protestant pamphlet. 
And so baptism and the flood and the universal deluge fills this image to emphasize that all are under sin. So you could quote the benefits of Christ to prove that, or you could go to another Lucas chronic law gospel image, the back of which is an image of the flood. So there's no stretch here. We know that it's quite possible to talk about the sin and the, the sin of our world and the flood in the same breath. And so that's why all on this side of this lost fresco series, you have damnation and the weight of sin that we cannot save ourselves from. And right there in the middle, yes, indeed, you have a beautiful, benevolent Jesus that maps wonderfully onto Lucas Cronick's benevolent Jesus's and might even be a deliberate refutation of the Jesus in the Michelangelo's Last Judgment, which was made before his connections with these Protestants. And so you hear often from Paul Zoll about Thorvaldsen's beautiful Jesus, who's so friendly that spread like wildfire amongst Lutherans. Well, here is the same example, that beautiful face that's placed right in the middle, looking at you with kindness. So you have law on this side, you have, and then on the gospel side, you have resurrection. And those bodies that are pushed down are being lifted up by the trumpet message of the gospel. And so there you have Moses with his condemning finger. You can't do it. It's chronic in camouflage. And then here you've got the proclamation of the message and the human heart lifting up when you hear the message of the gospel as happens in this conference year after year. And so we put those law and gospel on both of those sides there. And what's really cool is that this isn't a victory lap of the Christian life, this law gospel message. You are still freighted with simulustus et peccato. You're still a sinner. And so there are little ingredients to remind you of that, such as the labor of Adam and Eve. And original sin is still with us. The greatest law gospel fresco series has been destroyed. And it has now been recovered. And so we can certainly see gospel in Florence or if that word gospel is already tired for your ears, call it what the Beneficio di Cristo did, the Felicissima Nuova, <laughs> the good news that was spreading. There was a Gotha version of law gospel. There was a Prague version. And my last example is the third, the Weimar. In Weimar, there is maybe the most haunting and personal of these law gospel messages. And you can see it there. It's a reframing that Lucas Cronick, the elder, did. And we zoom in and we see, in this case, the super soaker jet stream of blood splashes right on the head of Lucas Cronick, the elder, and there's Martin Luther, and there's John the Baptist. And the, the tender story about this is that Lucas Cronick, the younger, worked on it. And I like to think of him saying, hey, dad, you know, you've really imbibed this message. I'm going to put you in here. And at that point, dad was too old to protest. And so he was just about to die. And who knows how the last details happened, but you see here a tender father-son partnership in the proclamation of the gospel. Not unfamiliar to people who love Mockingbird. And what I want to do here is say, where do we see this in other places? The, the spilling of blood on the head. Now, there's a lot of places we could go in medieval art to find that, but I want to go here to take us into our own time to conclude. Now, when you tell me about Sister Faustina Kowalska and her spiritual director, Michael Sapochko, 
I'm thinking, all right, I'm hearing law here. You know, I've got this, this is pre-Vatican II. What's going to be going on in, the, in, 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 in this kind of oppressive religiosity, we might think. But this nun has become world famous. She's a lot like Martin Luther. She gave such long confessions to Father Sapochko that he said to her, kind of like Martin Luther did early on, he's, he's like, you know, sweetie, you should really keep a journal. <laughs> just, just come to me with the worst stuff, please, please. And so she did, and that's how we know about her. And in one vision, something happened. She had a message from God of imputing love. God appeared to her with a jet stream, that super soaker spraying onto her of mercy. She had a man paint it for her and she wept when she saw it because it wasn't as beautiful as the original vision. Oh well. <laughs> and a couple of different versions spun off from this. And you will see it all over the world today. And what I wanna suggest is that that is that same message. Folks, a marvelous corrective to a lot of Catholicism that continues to be drawn in these other directions is this image of divine mercy. <laughs> Sometimes it's placed in the middle of the praying of the rosary, which means you have a Christocentric correction of most of the time you're saying, Jesus, I trust in you. Jesus, I trust in you. And that water and blood comes out and splashes you. <laughs> That's what this image offers us. And when I say, folks, it is everywhere, I say everywhere. <laughs> this is in the Philippines, a massive statue. <laughs> so you might think hearing law, but no, I think there is much, much gospel here. <laughs> and I know that um, this is a little bit like Buddy Christ from Dogma, but is that not a message of what it means to be a part of this ministry? To just abide and live in that jet stream of imputing, imparting love? <laughs> His record becomes ours, our debts become his, abiding there. We can rejoice, I hope, in that Christocentric correction that is going all over the place. So what I've suggested, in short, is that we go from this semi-Pelagian, you can do it message, to this recovery of the law gospel essential truth, which saved me in a youth group as a teenager and is refreshing my spiritual life today thanks to Mockingbird. And if we put all those versions together, one of the things that's so beautiful about this ministry after 10 years is that it enables a hermeneutic to unpack every conceivable form of popular culture. And if we can see it there, I very much hope that we can see it in these images as well. Thank you so much. We've got lunch. I think we've, maybe if anyone has a question, they wanna linger and talk, welcome to do that. Um, I, but I think we should, I will stick around for anyone who has questions um, and enjoy your amazing Pixie and the Scout downstairs. Thank you. Thank you.